I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, who deserves to be healthy? And who's responsible for that? Beatrice was a young woman who I treated for HIV disease a number of years ago. Uh, She was, frankly, one of my favorite patients. This is Michael Stein. Of all the patients he has seen during his decades as a primary care doctor, treating Beatrice had an especially large impact. She actually caused him to question whether he was even fit to be a doctor, capable of giving his patients the care they deserved. Beatrice would come to regular visits with me, bringing uh, her daughter. And Dahlia was about six when she started coming. She would come into the room and she would sit behind the examining table and disappear into her world of dolls. And the very first time I met with Beatrice, she said, I have to take care of my daughter and she's going to come to visits, but please, doctor, don't, don't ever use the word HIV or AIDS in front of her. She's young, but she you know, might have heard of this and I don't want it getting around where I live and I don't want to worry her. So, of course, I agreed to that early on. And and time went on, months, years of seeing her and, and, and Beatrice and I sort of spoke in a code, right? We talked about symptoms or we talked about medications, but I was really pretty perfect about avoiding the words HIV or AIDS in front of Dahlia. And Maybe two years or three years into care, Dahlia was again, of course, in the room and Beatrice's health had failed because she had not taken very good care of herself. She took her medications uh, intermittently and this caused her HIV disease to advance. And I was frustrated with her and it was probably a difficult day. And at a certain point during one of our visits, I said, "Are are you daring your HIV to kill you? And her daughter, who was hidden behind the table, popped up and and her tears were almost immediately in her eyes. And she said, Mom, do you have HIV? She was an uh, eight or nine-year-old at that point. And uh, her daughter and she started to both cry. And Beatrice looked at me as if I had betrayed her, got up off the examining table, walked out of the room holding her daughter's hand, and I never saw her again. I was extremely upset with myself. I I felt that I had um, uh, crossed the line. I had broken a contract. And um, although I'm imperfect, this mistake uh, felt particularly blunt. The fact that she disappeared, I never saw her again, really made me stop and understand perhaps, or imagine at least from her point of view, how humiliating this was for her, how it was a careless breach of a a doctor-patient relationship. But she wasn't holding up her end of the bargain, if this is a relationship. She wasn't taking the medicine. So did, did you really owe her kindness? Yeah, I don't think that these are equal equal sides of a seesaw, right? It's easiest to be compassionate when you're happy with your patients and, and you think that they're following your best care. Um, it's hardest to be compassionate and empathic when you feel that they're either not listening to you or not taking care of themselves. So the fact that I was um, angry at her, that I had judged her as not taking care of herself, meant that I had forgotten about her own vulnerability. And in some ways, by sort of shouting at her and maybe even using the word HIV, I was trying to humiliate her, that I was... Mm -hmm trying to sort of shake her awake. And, um, you know, that that didn't work, obviously. And worse than that was, uh, I think, deeply unkind. Would you rather have a doctor who is intelligent or kind? As a first-year medical student, Michael Stein chose intelligence over kindness without a second thought when asked on a survey what kind of doctor he wanted to be. Looking back all these decades later, 
Stein says the entirety of his career has been a slow understanding that he checked the wrong box. This season, top of mind is finding fairness. We all want good health. So today, who's responsible to make sure we get it? Are we owed something more by the doctors who treat us? Should our social status or personal choices affect our access to better health? Who should have priority when the key to health is in short supply, like organ transplants? And maybe most importantly, what responsibility do we have for the health of one another? Let's get back to Michael Stein, the primary care doctor who believes we are, in fact, owed something more than we typically get or maybe even expect from our doctors. I do think that there is this second level of obligation, which is that the patient has to be seen as more than their symptom. I think that's really what it comes down to. That usually involves some nod toward a patient's suffering and that the doctor's obligation is to try to reach through and touch that suffering in some way. That's the best possible encounter. And maybe even better for your health, too. Now, it's not a clear cause and effect, but one experiment found people who went through a traumatic surgery recovered better if they perceived their surgeon as empathetic. Another study found that patients under the care of doctors who rank highly for empathy had better blood pressure control overall. It makes sense to Dr. Stein. It does ring true to me. I, I think that the closeness of a relationship over time provides a patient a sense of accountability, a sense of wanting to do well for somebody else, which I think is um, essential to sort of cr good chronic care, whether it's back pain or blood pressure. I think it can provide a more positive outlook. It can provide a sense of control, all of which are the sort of the elements of recovery um, or better outcomes for people with chronic illness. What does kindness mean, practically speaking, when you're treating a patient? Well, I'll give you a very specific instance of a, of a person, of a conversation I had with a friend of mine the other day. So this is a, a woman who went in for a mammogram. Uh, at the mammogram, she was told, you need some extra images. Well, at that point, she became sort of an object of interest. This was a teaching institution. The room she was in was a large enough room so that a variety of people could troop in and out of the room. So here's a woman with her breasts exposed, being jostled around while people are walking in and out of the room behind her. Medical students brought over to sort of see how this is done. Nobody is introduced to her. Nobody's asked her permission, frankly, to bring anybody else into the room. This is an experience of medical care that is, I think, all too common. And I find, and she found, particularly unkind. And, you know, how would it have been done in a, in a more kindly way? It would have been that somebody described what was about to happen. Somebody described the people coming into the room. Those people introduced themselves and said, is, it a, is this okay that I'm here? Over his career, Dr. Stein's focus on what he owes his patients in their struggle for good health has broadened to a concern for what we owe one another. As a doctor, he says there's only so much he can do for a patient. He's like the goalie in soccer. The goalie is the last line of defense, and that's our doctor system, which is when you're sick, you go for care. Now, soccer, of course, you know, 99% of the action is out on the field by the other 10 players. Now, I call that public health. So public health is all the things we do when we're well to stop from getting sick. And so the best soccer team is one where we never use the goalie. There are no shots on goal. The other 10 players, the public health system is so strong that we don't need to use doctors. Now, we're a society that's based on individualism and that I can optimize my health. And what I'm asking people to do is mostly through their politics, but basically through their attitudes, think about the fact that the health of others could affect you. We live in a world where uh, my health is influenced by your health, that if you're sitting next to somebody on a bus who's coughing, they can give you COVID. So um, COVID is clearly the case where, you know, our health is in influencing lots of other people's health. But you know, if you send your child to a school 
with un unvaccinated children and your child gets measles and dies, well, again, you are dependent on somebody's health. If your aunt is killed by a drunk driver, the drinking behaviors in the, of, of our society become of interest to you all of a sudden. Does thinking about prioritizing public health, does that mean that there will likely come a time where I will have to sacrifice my own personal freedoms or best interest in some way for the greater good? I, I think a lot of us felt this way, or, or at least we saw this tension flare up during the pandemic. Um, you know, the the sort of like... I feel like I'm safe and can keep myself safe without having to limit my personal freedoms. It was very difficult for a lot of us. Yeah, well, what you're describing is the sort of endless American dilemma, right? Which is self versus community, me versus us, right? This goes back to Emerson versus Thoreau or Freud versus Marx, right? I mean, this is a this is an ongoing problem of how much we're willing to give up or do for others. And um the answer is that there's always a tension and there's always a struggle and yet we do it, right? So for instance, a simple one is we set speed limits. That's a decision where I'm willing to sacrifice some of my personal freedom for the good of others. And in some ways, perhaps for the good of ourselves, even though we don't think that, you know, we're ever going to be in a car accident. So we, we make these decisions about giving up freedoms all the time. So what difference would it make, do you think, if more of us in America were personally concerned about public health? If we were personally concerned about public health, we would be able to, primarily through our elected officials, reorient social, political, and economic priorities to focus on preventable conditions for our populations, whether that's opioid use, uh, mental health access, um, obesity, and how to prevent obesity, which is a pure public health matter, and I would say has very little to do with individual responsibility, gun violence, uh, and poverty. We need to always differentiate health care from health. Health is a public good, and health care is an individual good, and we need to be attentive to both. Michael Stein is a primary care physician and chair of health policy at Boston University School of Public Health. He's author of many books, but the latest two are called Accidental Kindness, which is a memoir, and Me Versus Us, which is about public health. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for your time today. Julie, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it very much. But what about personal responsibility? Let's say you damage your liver with a lifetime of drinking alcohol. Should you have priority for a transplant over someone who didn't drink? At that time in 2010, liver transplant centers everywhere in the world had a six-month wait if your liver failure is caused by alcohol. So effectively, you had to prove for six months that you would be good and not drink before they would allow you to have a transplant. And they don't care if you are going to die in the meantime. Her husband died because of the policy. Was that fair? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Mark was living with alcohol use disorder, and unfortunately his liver disease progressed to the point where he needed a transplant. This was 2010. Deborah Selkirk and her husband Mark lived in Canada, and she says he had struggled with alcohol for as long as she'd known him. He died when he was 52, so probably about 30 years. Hmm. He had been uh, sick with liver cirrhosis for almost three years by then and, uh, you know, tried to um, control his drinking and, and did very well for quite a while. But the problem in the system is that they go to see a liver specialist who effectively treats their liver, but the patient never gets sent for addiction treatment, and that's what's causing the liver failure. So what is classically happening in probably 85 to 90% of these patients is that uh, they are unable to stop drinking because they were never helped. They're just told, go home and stop drinking. And as anyone would know, you know, it's the same as if the doctor tells you, you need to lose weight or you need to exercise or you need to work less. You know, we have our lives and 
Addiction on top of that is a terrible disease and without assistance, he was just not in a place where he could stop drinking on his own. What was the first inkling that you had that something was seriously wrong? Well, when the liver deteriorates, you stop um, being able to absorb nutrients in your body. So over time, you know, they lose weight. And then when they start to get very tired and they start to get very jaundiced. And at that point, uh, the day he couldn't get out of bed anymore, it was time to take him for uh, more advanced treatment, obviously. Was an organ transplant on your minds? Was was that the thing you were expecting or hoping for, you and Mark? Well, when we went to the hospital, I wasn't really sure. And that evening, his specialist came into the room, and she started to yell at him in front of the nurse and the residents and me and said, what did you do? What did you do? You know you're not supposed to drink. You need a transplant. When, when did you stop drinking? And at that point, it had been three weeks. And she said, they won't even look at you. And then she looked at him and she said, I'm going to try and save your life. But if you ever, ever drink again, I will not treat you. At that time in 2010, uh, every liver transplant center in the world had a requirement that people with alcohol use disorder with liver failure had to prove for six months that they wouldn't drink before they would be assessed for transplant. So you come to the hospital, you have liver failure. If it's caused by alcohol, you wait six months. That was automatic for everybody. Were you surprised to hear that he was not eligible for a transplant? I was. We were totally unaware that that was a requirement. How long did he last then after he was told he needed to he needed six months of sobriety? Seventeen days. And even during that time, as he was getting sicker and sicker, there was no no option to sort of have the six months waived. No, there wasn't at all. Um, she said at that same night, she said to me, I will talk to the transplant team, but I don't think they'll help him. And then she never mentioned transplant again. So a couple of days later, I talked to the resident and I said, what if I donate a piece of my liver? Because I knew that that was an option. Mm. And he said, he said, he'll just drink again and waste the organ. And, and I said, it doesn't matter to me. Like, if he lives a year or two years, it's my organ, and I'm willing to, to give a piece of it to him. And he said, no, they won't even, they won't even consider that. So uh, I wasn't able to save him either. A few years after Mark's death, Deborah Selkirk turned her grief toward activism. I started to read medical papers and because they had said to me in the hospital, he'll drink again and waste the organ, I wanted to find medical research that told me what percent of people drank again and waste the organ. And no matter how many papers I read, they all said the same thing. And what they said was the six-month wait doesn't predict um, who is going to drink again and who doesn't. The six-month wait doesn't have any impact on whether people drink again. And most people don't drink again. And that that's when I started to fight because that was unconscionable to me. She sued the transplant authorities in Ontario where Mark died. And she lost. But the judge credited Selkirk's lawsuit with prompting the province to drop the automatic six-month wait, first as a pilot program and then permanently in 2020. Today, that's true for every major transplant center in Canada and many in the United States. Instead of requiring six months sobriety automatically, they look at a whole list of factors. But Deborah Selkirk doesn't see that as a win. It used to be a single question. When did you have your last drink? Six months, yes or no? Now it's all kinds of things. How long have you been drinking? Have other family members drank? Do you, you know, ignore your chores at home when you're drinking? They ask a million questions. You have to do interviews, questionnaires. It's, you know, screen them to death and pick the best patients. But to me, that's 
just as discriminatory as making them wait six months because you still don't have the research to show that they need to wait at all. Do you think that a a person's past behavior should have any bearing on their eligibility for an organ? I do not. And I say that for several reasons. Um, If you take, for example, someone who drives too fast and has an accident and they go to the hospital. We all know that driving fast can cause problems, can cause accidents. What if that person got to the hospital and they said, you have to prove to us that you're not going to drive quickly for six months before we save your life. And we're going to put a monitor on your car because if you do speed, we will not save your life. And they let that patient die. That would be horrifically unacceptable to society that that would happen. What about someone who carries a gun? They arrive at hospital, they've got a bullet wound, they're bleeding to death. And you say to them, we're not going to save your life until you prove to us for six months that you're not going to carry a gun anymore. That doesn't happen either. Should, should the person who had, whose past behavior contributed to their need for an organ be given the same priority as someone, so let's say someone whose liver failed because of alcohol use disorder, should that person have the same priority as as a patient whose liver failed for genetic reasons that were beyond their behavior, beyond their control? Absolutely. And regardless of what caused their liver failure, it should go to the sickest patient. Because If you don't do it that way, you're assigning more value to one life than another life. Mm. When you go to the emergency room, they don't line you up based on how guilty you are for being there, Mm. right? They see people based on urgency. So if you say, you did that, it's your fault, so we're going to give it to someone else, we're saying, you're not worth saving, this person's a good person, we're going to give it to them instead. You're assigning value to life. And I don't think that's right. Deborah, thank you so much for sharing your story and the story of what Mark has has inspired you to to take on here. I really appreciate this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for contacting me. Prioritizing the sickest person is how triage works in emergency medicine. But what if the sickest person is so sick they'll probably live only a few more months, even with a new organ? Would it be better to give that transplant to somebody who's in better shape and likely to live much longer? We called up a bioethicist to help us think through this a bit more, because it's not just about organ transplants. The way we settle the trickiest ethical questions reveals a lot about how we, as a society, answer the question, who deserves good health? So my name is Dr. Jacob Emmapel, and I'm a psychiatrist and a bioethicist at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. I'd like to start with a bit of history that was unfamiliar to me until I read your work. Would you tell us about the God committees that were in existence in the United States in the 1950s? So prior to the 1940s and 1950s, there were no large rationing crises in American healthcare because there simply weren't life-saving treatments or technological advances which many people needed and fewer available. The first of these actually occurred with the advent of iron lungs for the polio epidemics in the 1940s and early 1950s. But the system they used to address children usually who needed iron lungs was a first come first serve basis. Whoever showed up first got an iron lung. The next crisis though was a bit different. And this was in the early 1960s with the advent of dialysis. And the most famous case occurred at Swedish hospital in Seattle where they had a large number of patients who needed dialysis, acutely or they were going to die, and only a handful of opportunities to get dialysis on the machines available. So the local medical board appointed a committee that consisted of a combination of members of the community, some medical experts, to evaluate potential candidates. And after removing those they thought were medically unfit, then the process they used was social worth. So in the same way that you would apply to college uh, or graduate school, 
these patients with their doctors put together a portfolio, and those the committee felt were most valuable to society, even higher priority. Um, there was an enormous public backlash. So what kinds of things would, would make you more socially worthy to society? I mean, are we talking about if you own a business or if you are a philanthropist? I mean, was it that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, the committee debated this heavily. They actually they printed their transcripts in Life magazines. They had no sense they were doing something controversial. So they asked questions like, does somebody's education level matter? Does whether or not they have children as a part matter? They actually have a conversation over the likelihood of one of the patient's widows being more likely to remarry based on the number of children she has. Um, they have a conversation about whether somebody is an active churchgoer. And one member of the committee says that this suggests he's a moral and upstanding citizen. And then the lawyer on the committee says this would also make him to peace with a short death. So, I mean, the conversations are macabre and unsettling. And needless to say, there are clearly ethnic, racial, class, gender biases built into the system. Wow. I think both members of the lay public, but also members of the medical community, bioethicists, were deeply disturbed about making these kinds of social evaluations. Um, people fought back to the eugenics movement and the Nazi movement, um, and it really tarnished bioethics in some sense. At the same time, it led to a very important transition, which was we did not use social worth in the allocation of any healthcare resources. That was an unbreakable taboo. So let's say we take a scarce resource like a liver transplant or a ventilator. We can address questions like, are you likely to survive the treatment? Are you likely to steward the organ? We can't ask questions like, are you an upstanding citizen? Are you responsible for taking care of children? Are you more likely to develop a great scientific theory or artistic work? Um, those are off limits. What about though um, decisions that I've made in the past? What, you know, what if I have abused a, a, a substance or if I've harmed someone in the past or, or if I've committed a crime? <laughs> Under current system, the, the Dalai Lama and the Boston Strangler get equal opportunity to get an organ. We evaluate whether or not we think you're capable of stewarding the organ long term. Interesting. Steward the organ. So so that does have something to do with choices that I make, right? So so like what if what, what if I am still actively um, what if I need a lung transplant, but I also am gonna keep smoking after I get the lung transplant? Does that lessen my ability to steward the organ and therefore I would be I would have less priority? Absolutely. You would have no priority. So it's an all or none system. So we, we decide basically whether you're capable of stewarding the organ. Oh. We don't hold your past against you. Even if, even if my choices led to the organ's failure, I'm still eligible to get an organ. Absolutely. And because most of the things that would need you to get an organ are only your choices in the broadest sense of the term. Um, if I asked the average person, would you rather be born an alcoholic or not an alcoholic? Um, would you rather be born in a community where you ended up a heroin addict or not a heroin addict? I would assume that most people would choose uh, not alcoholism and not addiction. So that being said, a lot of these factors are out of your control. Mental illness would be another good example. So if I attempt suicide because I'm depressed and I overdose in Tylenol and need a liver, we don't say it's your own fault because you were depressed. Yeah. Although you have re recently published, Dr. Appel, um, uh, a case in which you would actually argue that a person's choice should affect their ability to get a transplant. This is the case of someone who... Um, refuses to get vaccinated for COVID. Walk me through your, think, your thought process there. Sure. So the first thing I would emphasize is there's no disease process that makes you more likely to refuse vaccination. So people who have alcoholism, people who have depression, who end up getting organs as a result of their actions are largely driven by a combination of genetics, of longstanding environmental factors, usually have very little power, I will add, as well. In contrast, um, Society has made an enormous effort to educate people on the value of vaccination. Um, in that context, I feel comfortable making this an exception to the general rule. You probably heard the story of, of Lake Bergatze. It was a national news story. He was a man who got a double lung transplant after he needed them due to COVID, but he hadn't gotten vaccinated. But people have lost in that story. And I'm glad the man did well, but they've lost the story of the two individuals with some other lung illness, let's say cystic fibrosis or idiopathic pulmonary disease, who did nothing on their own to cause their illness, who ended up not getting lungs and presumably died. Hmm. 
So, so in this, in, there's a very specific case here where you're saying that if someone refuses to get vaccinated against COVID and, and subsequently gets so sick that their lungs become damaged to the extent that they need a transplant, that individual should not be eligible or should have less priority than someone who chose to be vaccinated. Should have lower priority. I should obviously emphasize if we have enough lungs to go around, we should never deny them to anybody. The goal is not to punish people. But also, I think there's something to be assumed about the willingness to comply with measures going forward. If you're not willing to get a vaccination during a pandemic, are you really willing to take your uh, anti-rejection medication long term? And I have doubts about that. And the bigger solution would be to not have scarcity at all. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like We wouldn't have to make these choices if... If we could somehow figure out how to make sure that there was plenty of what was needed to provide for good health for everyone in this country. What stands in the way of that for us, do you think? The overwhelming majority of scarce resources in medicine and healthcare are scarce because we designed a system that makes them scarce. So you think about ventilators during COVID. We have known for a generation that there was likely going to be some kind of mass flu pandemic and we would need more ventilators. But we chose not to build more ventilators. So that's a societal choice we make. Mm. Um, and the organ donation, by the way, is the same way. We have set up a system that achieves a certain number of organs available. We have a system where you have to opt into organ donation countries that have made an opt-out system where you have to say you don't want to be a donor or you're automatically a donor are much more likely to be able to meet organ need. Some countries like Israel allow a system where people who list themselves as donors get higher priority. Countries like Iran have a limited market. So there are all sorts of mechanisms you can use to create more organ availability. What do you think the decisions that we make when resources are scarce tell us about what we really do value? So I think the, the first um, thing we learn about the very fact of scarcity in these situations is that Americans are very poor at planning for the future. And as a society, we really think about what we can get today and not what's going to serve our interests or our children's grandchildren's interests down the line, or a lot of these scarcities would be avoidable. But beyond that, I think we do have a system that clearly favors those with social capital and power over those without. So we don't take into account the fact that the reason you need the ventilator is not just that you have COVID, but that you have COVID and you also grew up in a community where you didn't have an access to a doctor. So your COVID is more severe, which is why you need the ventilator. Mm. We don't take any of those social factors into account in making allocations of decisions. You could have an organ allocation system, which we don't have which doesn't look at social worth, but does take into account the experiences you have that made it more likely that you would need the organ. Um, whether you grew up in a food desert and couldn't get healthier food, um, whether you had access to smoking or uh, drug cessation care and the like. We choose not to do that. So so, so as a nation, we are, we are uncomfortable with the idea of using social worth to decide who should get priority. But we're perfectly content to ignore the role that social capital plays in people's ability to get care. That's a perfect description. We delude ourselves into thinking that we're not taking social factors into account, but we actually are taking social factors into account in a more oblique and in some ways more disturbing way. Jacob M. Appel is a psychiatrist, bioethicist, and author. He works in the emergency room at Mount Sinai, teaches at the Icon School of Medicine, and wrote a book all about ethical dilemmas in medicine called Who Says You're Dead? Let's probe this idea of social capital a bit further. If we want to make sure that we're not setting people up for shorter, sicker lives just because they have less power in society— we need to have what legal scholar Dana Bowen Matthew calls a system of just health. Just health acknowledges the humanity of everyone in our country by giving them a fair and equal opportunity to be as healthy as they possibly can be. And so my parents are an example of unjust health. Her father died young of a brain aneurysm, but what really killed him, she says, was systemic inequality. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. My name is Dana Bowen-Matthew. I'm Dean at the George Washington University Law School. My passion is justice, and any form of inequality gets my interest. Her latest book is Just Health. 
treating structural racism to heal America. And her family's story lies at the heart of it. So my parents were African-American, and their deaths were hastened by inequality that robbed them of equal opportunities that others might have had. My father was 48 when he died of a cerebral aneurysm. It was the byproduct of high blood pressure, heart disease, and obesity. And these were brought on by the life he lived, trying to make sure that his children got a good education. So we lived in the South Bronx, and in the South Bronx, the schools that I would have gone to if I'd continued in public school after fourth grade were failing schools. Now, in order to get us out of the South Bronx educational system, my brother and I, out of that system, my father and mother, between them, worked five jobs. So my father would go to work in the morning as a real estate appraiser down on the 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue at the Bowery Savings Bank. And then he would come home proudly striding through the South Bronx with a suit and tie, one of the very few guys that were able to do that, um, eat dinner, take a quick nap, and then go ride the same subway system as a motorman. He would drive that subway system. So he worked two full eight-hour jobs. Well, eight and eight, 16, only leaves eight hours. And then if you take out time that he spent being a superintendent of other buildings, uh, real estate buildings that were owned for others, um, and doing odd jobs in order to make ends meet, you've got a lifestyle that is going to cause you to have high blood pressure and die early. And that's what happened to my dad. Here's the structural part of it. Here's the unjust part of it. Many, 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 many people of his race, gender, and ethnicity have the same problem. They cannot educate their kids decently. They don't get paid a living wage. They live in areas where the housing is unaffordable, the air is unclean, the water is undrinkable, and they have those disparities largely because of the color of their skin. But why not move? My father's story is salient here as well because we tried to move. Two things worked against us. One, income, and two, segregation. So whereas in the early 1900s, there were segregation laws that said you can live there and I can't live there because of the color of my skin and vice versa, we morphed. By that, I mean we changed our laws after the period in which those explicit segregation laws went away. We then went to covenants. That is, a contract to sell a house might have said, you can buy this house, but you can't buy it if you're going to sell it or allow a person of a different race to live in. After those became illegal, we started zoning restrictions. They were the way that we were able to continue to maintain our housing segregation without being explicit about race. Zoning restrictions might have said, you can't build your house here unless you build it on a large lot, largely unaffordable to people who make low incomes and not so much by coincidence are also of that race that we're trying to exclude. So Julie, what I'm trying to suggest is that the evidence is that although law changed and segregation was no longer legal, we found other laws to accomplish the same segregation outcome without expressly saying that race was the reason. When we moved to the Bronx in the middle of the 1960s, my parents and my grandfather went in on the house that we lived in and it cost $19,000. It was a big deal. We were going to the Bronx from Harlem. There were trees on the street. We were excited about the fact that it was a row house and not a tenement apartment. And so where did, how did your father get you and your brother out of those, that school in the South Bronx? So my father's way of getting us out of that was to take us out of the public school system altogether. I self-bussed across town an hour and a half every day to Riverdale and went to a private school. And that private school changed my stars. But my father, in order to pay, what I recall was $4,000 a year for our contribution to the tuition, had to work those four jobs in order to afford to get us out of the South Bronx. So by the time your father is uh, 48, you are in college at that point? I was. I was a sophomore at Harvard. Harvard University. He, he lived to see you at Harvard. He did. So I, in the book, 
pay tribute to my father for getting us out of poverty, uh, getting my children and grandchildren out of poverty, but he paid for it with his life. He paid for it by overcoming the discriminatory structures in income, housing, education. He took it out of his hide to make sure that we could get an equal opportunity to be healthy. Your mother's story uh, is similar uh, on some levels. She lived another decade or so after your father, but um, she was unable to get timely treatment for an infection. Um, and how, how do you believe her race and income affected that outcome for your mother, Marion Griffin Bowen? Well, my mother's is a good news and a bad news story with respect to how her race affected her health. I'll end on the good news, but let me <laughs> answer your question directly about how her race affected her access to health. My mother died of meningitis, specifically bacterial meningitis. Uh, very few people die from that because penicillin cures it. As it turned out, my mother got her infection while she was in a predominantly black part of Brooklyn where the healthcare system was largely uh, through emergency room rather than preventive and primary care, where the community generally have, because of a historic relationship between healthcare and the community, a distrust of going to the doctor. My mother laid in bed for two days with an infection that could have been cured by penicillin. And I only know about the two days, the last two days when I heard that she was in pain and ultimately slipped into a coma before we called an ambulance. The ambulance was slow. The care was slow. And what my mother's life exhibits is that the early demise and premature preventable deaths that Black people, Latino people, immigrant people, and other groups that are disadvantaged experience still remain today. I'm speaking with Dana Bowen-Matthew. She is dean of the law school at George Washington University. She's an expert in public health and civil rights law, and her latest book is called Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. Now, your parents were born in the 30s, the 40s. They came of age during a period of legalized racial discrimination and segregation and uh, often... Um, unpunished violence against Black people in America. So is what you're describing particularly true for Americans of your parents' generation? And someone who is 48 today in America would experience at least less of this? Well, for sure less. But it still is very clear from our health outcomes that we are far off the mark of having equality a fair and equal opportunity for all to be healthy. How do I know that? Well, take someone who's 48 today, an African-American, and even if they make a middle-class income, so that shows progress, let's say they make between 50 and $75,000 a year. Let's say also that they didn't have to go to school at night and get their BA, but they finished college and they got a middle-class job. The fact of the matter is that even today, that 40-year-old person has a shorter life expectancy than a white person at 48. The fact is that that person, when childbearing, if it's a woman, still has a two and a half times greater likelihood of losing their child in the first year of life than a white person who doesn't have a college education and lives below the poverty line. Now pause for a second, Julian, think about what I just said. A well-educated, middle-income Black woman still loses her baby in the first year of life two and a half times more frequently than a poorly educated, poor white woman in America today. Those differences tell me that although the laws have changed, the outcomes haven't, and health is a great indicator of the fact that the law is not yet doing its job. Where does, Professor Matthew, where does personal responsibility figure into health outcomes? Was there any of your father's health that he determined through his own choices and behavior? Of course there was. 
And we have very good data now that tells us about 30% of the influences on health outcomes for my father and anyone else have to do with health behaviors. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you exercise? We know too that about 10% of the influencers on your health outcome have to do with your access to clinical care. About 10 more percent have to do with your genetic makeup. But Julie, what we know is that 40 or 45% of what really determines how healthy a person is, is their social context. These things that affected my father and mother, where they live, their education, the air they breathe, the water that they drink, the structural environment in which they lived. And let me continue by saying that personal responsibility even those health behaviors for which a person is personally responsible are influenced by your social environment. D- does the structural inequity that you've described, um, which creates, does it primarily harm the health of people on the losing end? I'm a white, upper-middle-class woman in America today. I, I, I have not been harmed by many of the structural inequities that you've described. I've benefited is my health affected in any way by this? Or, or is it really more that the issue is I need, it's incumbent upon me to care that other people don't have the same opportunities? What an insightful question. I love that you recognize that we are, and here's where I want to go back to my mother's very hopeful story. We are connected. We know from data that, for example, looks at whether people who live in places that are described as more racially discriminatory versus places that are described as less racially discriminatory, Black and white people have higher heart attack rates. Black and white people lose their babies to infant mortality more frequently. That's weird, though. Why would that be? Do we know? That's a really interesting question. I think part of it has to do with the stress that racism places on all of us. I think it's fair to say that the data is beginning to show us that racism kills all of us. It makes all of us sick earlier and quicker than it would if we had an equitable society. So here's what I mean by that. We have data that tells us that when someone is uh, unarmed and killed by a police officer, or someone is the victim of hate speech, or hate crime, we can draw concentric circles around that event, where it happened. And the closer people are, regardless of their race, to the event, the more we see health and other indicators reverberate. We see declines in school performance. We see increases in emergency room visits. We see increases in hospitalizations. These kinds of events create stress on all of us. I think it's because we're just inconsistent with who we say we are and who we want to be as a nation. The happy side of my mother's story is that living in community, caring about one another, taking account that we are one another's brothers and sisters keeper, really can improve your health. That is a scientific fact. So my mother, though she lived in a tough neighborhood and had very little in the way of financial resources of her own, was a person who just loved people. She had friendships that continue to benefit me today. She was a person who gathered her family around her regularly. And these are what social scientists call a protective resource. Friendships, community, having opportunities to get to know people outside of your racial group, outside of your social group, people who listen to a different news program, who go to a different church. My mother was a master at this. And I maintain that's one of the reasons she lived 15 years longer than my father did. What can I do to improve the health of my neighbor? What what is within my my reach as a member of a community? 
Everyone has a role to play in making it possible for everyone in our community to have an equal opportunity to be healthy. The mom who's on the PTA and sees that most of the kids that are getting assigned to the international baccalaureate courses or the advanced placement courses are white, or most of the kids that are getting referred to juvenile detention are Black, can step up and say, that's an area that I can influence. These may not be my kids, but I know where this leads and I'd like to see us change the policy. A person who is an employer in a small business and has the opportunity to take a little less profit for themselves and add a little bit more to the paychecks of those who are working, maybe even more than their competitor is adding, can say, that's a place where I can pay something much more like a living wage. A person who's in a church who recognizes that they are in the most segregated hour of the week in our country might even just say, let's have a discussion group that's not only the people in our church, but in the church next door so that I can learn. We serve the same God. Why are we so separate? Maybe I'll look at your news program and you can look at mine. Any one of us can make a difference by recognizing, and I'm actually very encouraged by this, by recognizing that any place we fight for equality, even in the way that we vote, any place that we fight for justice, any place that we seek to treat all human beings as equal, we're going to improve just health. Dana Bowen-Matthew is Dean and Harold H. Green, Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. She's a leader in public health and civil rights law. And her books include Just Medicine and most recently Just Health, Treating Structural Racism to Heal America. Dr. Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And for sharing your family's story as well. Thank you for your interest and for your awesome podcast. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops, Kimberly Beck, and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Mitchell Towsley, and Christian Mockatel. Please take a minute to rate and review Top of Mind right now on whichever app you are using to listen. That is the best way for other people to find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>